Profiles in Cinemania William Friedkin In Memoriam For much of the first 50 years of filmmaking, film directors, with a few notable exceptions, were pretty much treated as interchangeable cogs in the machine. However, in the late 1960s, a new paradigm emerged. Just as the Titans were cast down and supplanted by the gods of Olympus, in the new Hollywood system, it was the directors, not the studios, who came to be seen as the gods of the set. Fortunes, careers, and lives were made and broken at a word, and mortal concerns were cast aside in pursuit of their creative vision. And as with any set of gods in human history, some were benign, some were malevolent, but all were ultimately capricious and self-interested. One of the darkest gods within the new Hollywood pantheon was William Friedkin. A new theology met a new morality. It overthrew the strictures of the Hayes Code, freeing filmmakers from black and white values, which insisted that cops and cowboys were good guys, criminals and Indians were bad guys, gays did not exist, and fuck you if you didn't like it. If you're not familiar with the Hayes Code, we did a PIC on it not too long ago, and you should go check it out. Friedkin was a director who wanted the public to see a world filled with shades of gray. He liked grime. He liked grit. He was the patron of anti-heroes and morally ambiguous protagonists. Friedkin had been born and raised in Chicago, where the cops are just another criminal gang. He knew from experience that real life was far more complicated than what had been depicted in American cinema thus far. The genesis of Friedkin's career was in television. He made news packets. He began his directing career in 1962 with a documentary, The People vs. Paul Crump. This film examined the arrest and conviction of an inmate on death row and raised doubts in the minds of the public about police torture and coerced confessions, questions which white people tended to ignore in that era. This picture was shown in the festival circuit over the next few years, where it won Friedkin both awards and an agent. When he eventually fetched himself to Hollywood in the late 60s, he paid his dues with a teeny bopper party movie featuring Sonny and Cher. He said he enjoyed making this film, but also later described it as unwatchable. Who among us hasn't taken a less than desirable job just to pay the bills or just to get our foot in the door? It may not have been high art, but all the men came around and laid their money down. As the decade turned and the last vestiges of the old system sloughed away, Friedkin abjured the production of any further saccharine shibboleths for the studios. He was a man seeking apotheosis. In 1970, Friedkin threw the icon of the Hayes Code to the ground with his film The Boys in the Band, an adaptation from a 1968 off-Broadway play. It is celebrated as a milestone for queer cinema. It is among the very first American films with a plot centered around gay men. While modern viewers see this film as an anachronism, and some even consider it harmful, it is still considered by many to be an honest depiction of the struggles of gay men in that era. More to the point, it depicted a group of gay men who are actually having a grand old time and enjoying life, for the most part. By the standards of Hollywood, it was a moonshot of progress. Friedkin was elevated to Cinematic Olympus in 1971 with The French Connection, a film which is still considered one of the greatest works of cinema in history. Friedkin shot it in a faux documentary style, lending the film a degree of realism unfamiliar to viewers at that time, and later revived as the mockumentary. The French Connection was also uniquely gritty for the time, a lightly fictionalized account of New York narcotics cops pursuing a French heroin smuggling ring while engaging in sketchy, extra-legal tactics to get the collar. The shades of grey he depicted were unthinkable a decade before and shocking to an audience coddled by the Hayes Code. The film's climax set the standard for heroin car chases ever afterward. 
and has been endlessly imitated in the decades since. However, it is also one of the most reckless examples of guerrilla filmmaking ever undertaken. Friedkin had no permission whatsoever from city authorities. He essentially told his stunt driver to go like a maniac as long as he could, and he pieced together the footage later. The scene was filmed illegally on the active streets of Brooklyn, New York, risking the lives of mere mortals in service to the urges of one of New Hollywood's gods. He later acknowledged it was a miracle that nobody was seriously hurt. Forgiveness, after all, being easier to ask than permission, especially when one stands atop a mountain of plaudits and shiny awards. Other future filmmakers copying the example he set would not be so lucky. Seriously though, kids, don't ever do that. You are not William Friedkin, and it is definitely not 1971. His gamble did pay off. The French Connection won five of the eight Academy Awards nominations it received, two of five BAFTAs, three of four Golden Globes, plus a Grammy for Best Score, and has been cited as an inspiration by filmmakers like Akira Kurosawa, Steven Spielberg, the Coen Brothers, no surprises there, David Fincher, no surprises there either, and Brad Pitt, okay, a little surprise there. In 1973, Friedkin would move from the Twilight Realms fully into the darkness. His next film would show he was not satisfied with simply defacing the obsolete icons of old Hollywood. He would fully demolish them with a horror masterpiece that is still considered one of the scariest movies ever made. The Exorcist, a tale about the satanic possession of a young girl that is so embedded in our shared cinematic history that it needs no further explanation. Production of The French Connection may have endangered lives, but The Exorcist had an actual body count. The more hyperbolic tabloids connected at least nine deaths to the production. Disasters, tragedies, and grievous injuries plagued the cast and crew. From mysterious fires and electrocutions, to the spinal injuries of both female leads from FX rig failures, to episodes of random gunfire used to provoke real reactions, to actual exorcisms being performed on set. Any making of account about the exorcist you'd care to read gives the impression that working on the film may have been even more harrowing an experience than that of the story's protagonists. Nevertheless, all this suffering and death fueled a legend of cinema history. The Exorcist won two out of a whopping ten Oscar nominations, five out of seven Golden Globes nominations, and garnered a BAFTA nomination. Even more astonishing was its financial performance. Until 2017, The Exorcist remained the highest grossing R-rated film in history, even without adjusting for inflation. Friedkin's dark apotheosis was complete. Great though Friedkin may have been at the height of his power, he was never the king of the new Hollywood Olympians. The 14 films he made after The Exorcist never even came close. 1977 Sorcerer was a masterwork in tension that remade 1954's The Wages of Fear, but it was lost in the noise around a space opera with laser swords that dominated the theaters that summer. 1978's The Brinks Job was a fairly bog-standard heist picture without much to distinguish it. His 1980 film Cruising humanized New York's gay nightclub scene by featuring a young Al Pacino as an undercover cop hunting a serial killer through the gray areas of human desire, and should have been a triumph, but audiences just weren't ready. 1983's Deal of the Century was a clumsy attempt to fuse Friedkin's trademark gritty realism with comedy, but nobody found Chevy Chase as an arms dealer particularly funny. His 1985 film To Live and Die in L.A., which he co-wrote with one of Reagan's Secret Service agents, featured grimy, venal people being grimy and venal to one another, juxtaposed against the neon pastel backdrop of Los Angeles. It turned a few heads, but not enough. Rampage, shot in 1987, promised to recapture some of Friedkin's former glory. It was a fictionalized account of real-life serial killer Richard Chase, a.k.a. the Sacramento Vampire, 
that that promise was hollow. Rampage ended up getting shelled for five years due to the bankruptcy of De Laurentiis Productions later that year. He continued to direct, but each successive film Friedkin produced seemed to be an increasingly desperate grasp for relevance. Times change, the wheel turns, and even the gods must either adapt to the demands of new generations or fade into obscurity. New Hollywood was no different. One thing was clear as the 80s wore on and became the 90s. Audiences had tired of gritty realism and moral ambiguity. People remembered they went to the movies to escape reality, not to have it rubbed in their faces. Fantasy and clearly defined heroes and villains were the order of the day. Time had diminished the sparkle of Friedkin's awards. William Friedkin died in August of 2023, leaving the Kane Mutiny Court Martial unfinished. Although he may now be gone, he is not forgotten. How could he be when the opening tinkle of tubular bells will now forever be associated with possession and raw evil? His works survive him. If you dare to look beyond glitz and fantasy, you will see them standing in the shadows, beckoning you to come and see the true heart of man. This has been another Profile in Cinemania. This episode was written and performed by Ethan Ireland. Music by Meteor at meteormusic.bandcamp.com. Profiles in Cinemania is a product of the Cinemania Society, LLC.